Are you ready to ride? Join us on Saturday, October 22nd for the 2022 Campbell Law School Bike Ride. The race begins and ends at Raleigh Brewing Company. You can race a 10 to 12 mile course, a 50 mile course, or you can do a virtual course. The fundraising for this event supports Campbell Law School's student-led pro bono council and all of their projects. Ticket registration includes a 2022 bike ride t-shirt, a bib number, and a complimentary food and beverage at Raleigh Brewing Company. For more information, go to Campbell Law School's website. Thank you to this year's sponsors, Raleigh Brewing Company, Attorney at Law Magazine, Trek Crabtree, Raleigh Magazine, and Metro. At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. Uh, My name is Stephen Dinkle, your guest host today, and I have the privilege and the honor to interview our dean, Dean Leonard, how are you? I'm great, and thanks, Stephen, for uh, giving me a chance to talk. Yeah, we have a a lot to unpack here, and I want to take advantage of everything that we can. Um, You just did something really exciting, and a lot of people can't say that they've done that. Uh, This one specific thing that I'm talking about is you just wrote a book. I did. And uh, what is, uh, two questions on that. What is it called, and where did the title come from? Well, it's called From uh, Welcome to Bintook, A Judge's Journey, and uh, welcome is the little rural community in Davidson County where I grew up, uh, where my family's lived for 250 years on the same creek bank. Wow. Uh, and I worked all over Africa for more than two decades, but Ventuk is the capital of Namibia, and it's my favorite country in Africa, and it's the last city where I spent a considerable amount of time on this particular journey. So. Uh, the alliteration worked and the cover worked. So hey, there you go. When I talked with my publisher. They said that'll work. That's a good title. And then for me, when I saw it, I knew I had two choices on how to pronounce, uh, you know, to enunciate that word. And I chose the I chose he chose poorly, and uh, that's what happened. So it's Windhoek because it's it's Windhoek because it's a German name. Namibia was German West Africa for or German East Africa for many many years when it was a colony. It was. You know, when you go to Africa, you realize that the colonial presence there is still very obvious. Yeah. The legal systems and the culture and, you know, in the late 1800s, all the German kings and emperors sat around, all the European kings and emperors sat around a table and they just drew lines and divided up Africa. Wow. Not with much... uh, concern for whether it made sense for the native Africans. Uh, no. And so this was one of the colonies that uh, went into the German column. So a lot of the names there are German. 
and we're going to go into uh, more of what's uh, in the book. And it's not just about your journeys in Africa per se. It's a, it's really biographical of your legal life uh, and your personal life. It started out being more about Africa, and then I would write about something in Africa, and I would reflect on, well, how did you know anything about that? I mean, what in your background made you think you could go to Africa and talk about uh, case management? Uh, and so I'd write about what I'd done in the U.S. that made me a little bit of an expert in that area. And uh, I'd talk about education in Africa and their different systems. And I'd write about, well, uh, you know, my education here and how it uh, prepared me and differed. Uh, judicial selection in Africa, which is very different from judicial selection here, sent me into uh, uh, thinking again about some very happy episodes in my life and some very sad ones where some judgeships worked and some didn't. Right. And but that's like the beauty of uh, a work like this is that it's just not you just saying, oh, here's all the good things that happened to me. It's you go through a lot of your life in there. And that's where, like where I admitted before we started this, I hate admitting this, but I didn't know a lot of things, which I should have. Yeah. And or I felt like I should have. And it made me know you better on this. So I hope well, a lot I'm of people glad you do said it. that because that's really uh, one of the motives for writing this. Uh, you know, I wanted uh, to have this collection of what I think are pretty good stories for my own children and grandchildren and close friends. But beyond that, when it comes to my law students, uh, we're always good at padding our resume. And I think when you students look at mine, it looks like it never faltered. <laughs> you know, I got to Moorhead to Carolina. I did, you know, I finished at the top of my class. I went to Yale Law, I came back and I clerked for the chief federal judge in North Carolina. I practiced law with Senator Sanford's law firm. I got to be a judge. Yeah, you, I was you, 31. You, I got to move to a deanship. And sitting uh, right next to big prominent people that you know. It's it, like, exactly. But it, it truly wasn't like that. I mean, it was full of false starts and insecurity and feeling like you were in over your head and positions came to you before you really were ready for them or understood how to do them. And you just plow ahead and you do the best you can. And you can get to the top of this profession. And I'm confident that uh you know i am but uh but it's not without uh, a lot of self-doubt and introspection and elbow grease and sleepless nights and that's actually a perfect leeway into uh, how the whole thing that sticks out in my head on how it all starts is that you talk about you're sitting in your chambers and then you get phone a phone call, call. absolutely tell us about that phone call. yeah it was uh so it's 1994 i was a federal bankruptcy judge uh, I'd been two years in that job. I'd inherited fabulous little courthouse in Wilson, North Carolina, because that's where uh, the predecessor whose death created the vacancy had a courthouse. So it was made very clear to me that if you, you know, this is the job. If okay. you want this job, it comes with this courthouse. So All right. That was fine. Uh, and I loved it. I really did love every part of that job. But I, it was an afternoon recess from a trial. Phone rang, and this fellow said, he was from the U.S. State Department, and uh, they were looking for a judge to go to Zambia to work as a consultant. The Zambians had just amended their constitution to, in many ways, mimic ours, and they were setting up a new structure for their courts, and they wanted an American judge to come advise them, and would I like to go? Did you think it was a, like a joke I call? didn't know. I, of course, I, I, you know, I wanted to keep it going. I said, sure. You know, where, where is Zambia? <laughs> and... Um, 
And I didn't know. I know, you know, you get those inquiries, and sometimes the callback never comes. They're talking to six people or eight people, and they go another way. Um, but I went home, and I did some research that night, and he called back the next day to see if I was interested. And I said, fella, you've got the wrong guy. I mean, I am a, a, a tall, white, blonde Southerner with a considerable accent, and Zambia is a 100% black African nation. I just don't think I'll be effective there. That's the phrase I took out because <laughs> the imagery like, is insane. So what did he say after you? Well, he said, no, we think you're wrong. He said we, uh, the Zambians were very careful in wanting a judge who had some administrative experience. They don't need any lectures on separation of powers or rule of law. They got all that. Uh, and early in my career, I had been the very successful clerk of the Eastern District, the federal courts here uh, in Eastern North Carolina. Uh, and so that reputation was known. And he said, every place we ask around the country who we should ask, they say, well, the only guy who's got that background who's a judge is this fellow in North Carolina. So you ought to go ask him. So how did it feel when you fast forward? And I don't want to give too much of the book because there's uh, one there's way too many things to talk about we'd be here for a long time and you're a very busy right. man um but also people read the book but what did, how did you feel when you got there uh a little overwhelmed uh it was funny because uh you know i got to lusaka the capital of zambia and i'm in the immigration line and i was you know this was a while back i was younger uh and i apparently did not look like uh, their image of a federal judge from the United States. So they kept going down the line, uh, approaching every older white man saying, Judge Leonard, Judge Leonard, and I just stood there. Finally, I was the only one left. And I said, I, I think you're looking yeah, for me. I'm here. So they were a little surprised, a little taken aback that someone who, by their measure, uh, a, little, a little youthful to take on this assignment, had you, been sent over. But, uh, but uh, it, it worked out. And in, in Zambia, there's one thing in there that was just, I didn't, like, you think about it, but it, when you pointed it out, it was it, it's about their history and how their customs were. You talk about their customary law. Right. And specifically on estates. Astounding. That was, like, Astounding. incredible. So I would, uh, one of the things that uh, I did that was really helpful for the Zambians, because they never approached their court docket like this, is I went through and I did an empirical draw of their cases. I think I took every case that ended in the number two. Uh, and I graphed them all out, sort of when they were filed and what had happened procedurally and what they were about substantively and how many hearings they'd had, and, and really drew some pretty startling conclusions for the Zambian judges about how they had no management whatsoever and cases were just languishing. You mentioned that there was a, a murder case that it it's was... tried 20, they had 27 trial days over three years. Incredible. Uh, I mean, guys in prison for murder for all this time being hauled back and forth and back and forth. And um, got witness But the problems. estate thing you mentioned, yeah. which I'm going to talk about, because I kept finding these estate cases. And so uh, a man would die and the nephews would come in and just take everything away from his widow and away from his children. And I would say, how can this be? And they said, well, no, that's the law under our customary law of some of our tribes. And they said, and I said, but why? He said, well, a man can never know that the children of his wife are really his. And he cannot know that the children of his brothers are really theirs. But he knows 
that he and his sisters are of the same mother. And it is important that the land be kept, the possessions be kept within the tribe. And so the sons of the sisters are his heirs at law. Wow. Wow. Like, I, I, I see the logic, right? I see the logic. And this was 94, right? Yeah. So this was just as DNA stuff was just coming out. I think the Clinton administration had just made a, an announcement yeah. of maybe two years ago. And you're prior. right. Now they could check it. Right. Uh, and, but, but the funny thing about that is there is a national intestacy law that this completely conflicts with. And one of the things that African countries have had a hard time reconciling is how to honor their customary law matched up against their national law. And some countries like Zambia in certain specified areas like marriage and inheritance have exempted those from their constitutional provisions about wow. equal protection. So, because they're so discriminatory against women in many instances. Yeah. Other countries have not. Other countries have required that their customary law come into compliance. So, you know, there's a doctoral thesis there somewhere if somebody wanted to write it. Heck yeah. And <laughs> just as, well, and it's so ever-changing, you know, we've been dealing with our, you know, legal system for much longer than they had by right. that by this point while you were there. Exactly. They had only had their custom of what they've been growing up for centuries yeah. and now in essence being codified so exactly to say. no exactly once they became democratic republics with their own constitutions they uh you know they had their own uh sovereign systems that they had to decide how to reconcile all of this that's in that's just incredible like <laughs> like i wouldn't think of that because you know we're all used to this but that's just uh, amazing on how you had to try to blend that yeah. and kind of see where the roadblocks happen exactly you talk about uh, the chief justice out there, and, and help me with pronouncing Ingalubi, his name. Ingalubi, my buddy. okay. Uh, Matthew Ingalubi, uh, just a wonderful man. Uh, he, um, we got to be very, very good friends. And um, he told me one time this story, which sort of brought home the peril at which these young democracies are functioning. Uh, he said he had entered a judgment in an election case unfavorable to the government. Uh-oh. And about midnight, the president's gendarmes knocked on his door and said, come with us to State House." And he said that was ominous because he and the president had been revolutionary leaders and they knew about the dungeons under State House because they'd both been housed in them uh, during the uh, attempt to become a separate uh, constitutional government and break away from Great Britain. He had been sweating like crazy when yeah. that happens. So they, he goes down there with them and they have a pleasant conversation. They obviously know each other because he appointed him Chief Justice. Um, and he says, Mr. Chief Justice, I'm extraordinarily disappointed in you uh, and I want you to withdraw that judgment. And uh, Justice Ingalibi said, Mr. President, we are now a constitutional democracy. I have my role and I have done it. You have yours and I assume you will do yours. And he walked out. And he said he thought he had about a 50-50 chance to get to the uh, door, but he did. Wow. And he went back, and, you know, that was a real blow for the independence of the courts, that they'd stood down the executive and uh, still managed. But this is how the president got him back. Uh, a few years later, I read to my horror that he'd been forced to resign in disgrace oh. because they discovered a Swiss bank account in his name that allegedly he'd been embezzling court funds and sending them to Switzerland. And he proclaimed his innocence, but he just stepped down not to fight about it. And years later, a commission cleared him. They found in uncontrovertible evidence that he knew nothing about the account, 
the president had set it up in his name to control him. Wow. Uh, so, so he gets tarnished for a good amount of time. But then he's resigns. resurrected, and okay. he's he's actually still he's still a, probably the most prominent member of the Zambian bar today. He never went back to the court, but he's still you know very influential lawyer in Zambia. Wow, just inc- and that's just that's just one section of the book, and we're missing <laughs> a lot of that section. There's a lot of things to unpack. Now, you mentioned your background in administrative type of right. uh, dealings with courts. You have a part in there was about jury duty and a doctor. Yeah. I thought this was a hilarious story. So lead up to where this comes in. All right. So when I was the clerk of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina, one of the most important duties that comes with that position is that you constitute the jury panel for the federal courts and you renew it every four years after every presidential election. And in the 44 counties of eastern North Carolina, I had to first decide how many jurors we were likely to need over the next four years. And then I had to apportion them out based on the population of each of the 44 counties. And then I had to send my deputy clerks out to those counties with an instruction, like go to Pasquotank County, pull every 57th name off the voting rolls. Uh, and bring it back. And we would compile all of those into a huge jury panel that we would qualify uh, for the next four years. But uh, federal law exempts, and you can't change it locally, exempts some folks from jury service. And it's largely emergency workers. It's firemen, it's policemen uh, who are hard to pull off their duties. Uh, But then you can add exemptions uh, locally. And when I got to the court, we had generous exemptions. (laughs) Essentially, every doctors, lawyers, teachers, every professional person you would want on your jury if your life or liberty was threatened had been exempted. Wow. Uh, And I didn't like it. Uh, And when the legendary Earl Britt, who uh, came to the court in 1980 and just stepped down the end of May this year Mm. after 52 years of trying cases over there, the uh, when Judge Britt became the chief judge, he'd grown up like I had in rural North Carolina, and he didn't like elitist much, and I don't either. Uh, and so he and I just stripped all the exemptions out. Love it. Every one. The only ones that were left were the ones that federal law required. Okay. And so uh, we had a doctor from, I think he was from Fuquay, I think, and he was summoned for jury duty, and he just ignored us. He didn't come. He didn't ask for an excuse. He just ignored us. Nothing, and just no call, nothing, no show. No, no, and so Judge Britt called in the marshal and said, go to his practice, go through his waiting room. Uh, unless there's somebody there who looks seriously ill, uh, go arrest the doctor and bring him over here. <laughs> so squad of marshals go out and raid this doctor's office and bring him to the federal courthouse in shackles. The imagery is amazing. I can just so <laughs> and see they, it. But it gets better. Uh, they bring him into the courtroom, and Judge Britt says, I'm busy now. Put him in the holding cell. Yes. Put him on ice. <laughs> so the doctor sat in the holding cell all afternoon, uh, and Judge Britt came in and dealt with him uh, summarily and held him in contempt and fined him. and Which he was. Said you can purge your contempt by showing up for jury duty next week, which he did. Uh, and um, when that story spread, we didn't have much trouble. Everybody was really motivated. Everybody come, figured right? out. We were pretty serious about this jury duty thing. Like, oh, okay. Well, I guess we're not going to uh, uh, you know, mess with that. Uh, but that goes to 
court infrastructure in general. And that was a lot of your background going into, you know, these countries and, and giving them not only your legal it background, was. but also the administrative background. What is so like a lot of people only focus on the, you know, the, the, the nitty gritty of the law, but you have like your, your court uh, clerks and all the different oh, administrative And one people. of the things I used to say in Africa, you know, when I would make speeches about this and talks about this, says if you're wrongfully detained in prison, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're there because of a corrupt judge or because the clerk lost the file. You're still in prison. Right. Uh, and you're probably there more frequently because the clerk lost the file than you are because uh, there was some corruption in your conviction. Which so, goes to your importance of having good Good structures, yeah. good people and good structures. So uh, when I took over the Eastern District, I inherited a, a lovely staff, but they were candidly middle-aged ladies with high school diplomas uh, who would take the filing, type it on the docket sheet, put it in the file, all perfectly done, and no understanding what any of it meant. And I started hiring uh, really bright folks right out of local colleges to be case administrators. And I taught them the rules of civil and criminal procedure, and I gave them each a set of cases that were theirs to manage. And I gave them rules by which they could manage those cases so nothing ever went off track. And they took great pride in that. And consequently, uh, and it's, I mean, there's a newspaper article down in the Dupree courtroom that documents this if you want to get a cite. Uh, but truly, uh, we were, there are 94 district courts. We were close to the bottom in speed of disposition of cases when I started. And in three years, we were one. Wow. We were the fastest court in the country in disposition of cases. That's, that's a big change. And it was all about a complete change of mindset about case management. And you have a, you mentioned a, a lady, and I unfortunately forget her name, but. Oh, I love this story. Can uh, I tell it, Miss Skinner? Uh, yeah, I believe yeah. it's her. So I would bring my young clerks in and just throw them right into the fray. And a wonderful young woman named Jolie Skinner, who retired last year as the operations manager of the court. Like 30, 30 some years? 30 some years later. Uh, but uh, her third day, uh, she was at the counter, which we, as I said, we threw you right in. And George Ragsdale of Ragsdale Liggett, the big firm here still, probably the most fierce litigator in Raleigh, shows up at the counter and demands that the clerk sign a writ of attachment for some airplanes in Kansas for a lawsuit he's filing. Well, you can't do that. The North Carolina attachment statute, which the federal courts use, doesn't let you attach property outside of North Carolina. You would have had to go to the Kansas court to get Kansas planes attached. So Jolie brought it back to my office and I explained the law to her and said, this can't be done, uh, go back and tell him. And she went back and she told Mr. Ragsdale, well, Mr. Ragsdale, I'm sorry, but this is inappropriate and uh, the clerk cannot sign this order. And he fumed and fussed and little lady, I've been practicing law for 30 years and I've never heard such nonsense. Of course he can sign it. And she said, Mr. Ragsdale, this has been the policy of our court the entire time I have been here. On her third day. <laughs> on, on day three. <laughs> Fast forward 30 some and years said, later. This, and I said then, yeah. the day will come where she can be running this place. And, and it looks was. like she was, right? <laughs> oh, that that takes a lot of guts to, like, you know, he's heated for what he's trying to do. Right. She's, you know, the paint's still drying, right? right? right. And, uh, and she says, this has been the policy. That's, oh, that's amazing. I love it. Again, folks, get the book. There's a lot of cool stories in there. Um, but there are also some really 
personal stories uh, in addition that are not necessarily law related. I thought a big part was your climbing endeavors, which does have to do with uh, Africa as well. But climbing was a big or is a big part uh, of your life. I haven't done it in a while, but I was very serious about it. You know, uh, know, a couple of decades ago, I went up Rainier a couple of times to the summit with friends. uh, Through a blizzard? Through a blizzard that was brutal, brutal. But then... uh, but then the thing that I most enjoyed and take a lot of pride in is that uh, I got to the top of Kilimanjaro. Uh, my twice, old, twice, yes. Yeah, t- well, <laughs> yeah. So this is how it went. My oldest son Matt, uh, who's my lawyer's son now, uh, had gone with me to Zambia on one of my trips. He had a uh, internship in the American Embassy, and uh, when. Uh, and he and I had already decided we were going to stay an extra week and have an adventure. So I uh, got up with one of my best friends, uh, John Edwards, who all of you know, I assume, from being the senator and running for vice president, um, and suggested that he and his son Wade come over, and the four of us would go up Kilimanjaro together. And they did. And we had I'd found a, a private guide, and Tanzanian law requires you to hire a porter for every climber, so... And we had a, a, we were luxuriously staffed. Yeah, we had, had a, a guy and four porters uh, for the four of us. Uh, and we went up a, a back harder way that takes longer, but you don't see anybody. Uh, so it was really lovely. Uh, and it almost didn't work. Uh, we had, we, I write about in the book some problems we had in early days. But what really happened is at about 17,000 feet, John and I both just got terrible altitude sickness. And the medicine you take, uh, diuretics, helped me a little bit, so I kept going. But he just got in worse and worse shape. And so uh, that um, the night before we were started for the top, I just said, you stay in the tent, and I'll take the boys up. You're not going to make it. Well, there he is in his climbing clothes. He's going. He's not going to be denied this. So we start up, but he was so slow, boys were freezing. And I finally sat him down on a rock and said, look, we're not going to make it at this pace. you got to go back and let me go up with the boys. So he reluctantly agreed. So the boys and I climbed all night and got to the summit uh, right at sunrise, and it was glorious. And we started down, and we're about two hours coming back down, and here comes Edwards with his porter trudging up the mountain. He hadn't gone back at all. He had been, you know, laboriously coming up the mountain all night. Oh, wow. And I told the boys to go back down. And I got one end of his walking stick, and his porter got the other, and he held the middle. And we gravitated back to the top. And that's how you made it twice. That's how I climbed it twice. Uh, And, you know, John is a great guy, and he said, you don't have to do this. And I I said, and I don't know, uh, Elizabeth Edwards, his wife, was incredible force, brilliant lawyer in her own right, one of the smartest people I've ever known. Uh, and I said to him, well, if you think I'm going to leave you here to die on this mountain and go home and face Elizabeth, you really are hallucinating. Yeah. I'm, I, no, I'm not taking that one on. I'll, I'll die with you. <laughs> yeah, I'll go down with you up here before I'll do that. Uh, That's a, And then there's another thing that you mentioned. You mentioned the embassies and there's a little story about you used to also jog and 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 go running i did when you're on your trips out there there were two things that popped out <laughs> is one what did people think about it and then you asked some people to join you yeah well that was um i, I was in i don't i'm a swimmer now because i don't have my feet aren't as good as they used to be but i used to be a serious runner and so 
Uh, the first day I was in Lusaka, I took off about five o'clock for an afternoon jog, and um, the porter ran me down, and he said, uh, "He said, my lord, which is what they call judges and male judges in Africa, female judges are milady." Okay. Uh, said, my lord, have you left something I can fetch for you, or do you just trot? <laughs> because most Africans think who walk everywhere. I think the American habit of running for pleasure is just funny. Um, But the kids didn't. So every afternoon, there'd be 10 or 15 young Zambian kids from like 5 to 15 waiting on me outside the hotel. You had a little running club going on. We had a little running club. We would run four or five miles all over Lusaka every afternoon. But one time I went, I was training for a marathon, and I really was upping my mileage. So... Uh, I said to the ambassador, you know, I, I, I got to run a long ways. And he said, well, go to Marine House and get one of those young Marines to go with you. So I went over there and every place that we have uh, diplomats, the Marines have a Marine House that guard our diplomats in every country in the world. And all these uh, young studs were over there. And I said, guys, I need somebody to run with me. And they said, that'd be great. And they said, how far are you going? I said, well, I got to go 15 miles Saturday. And they said, oh, this is a really safe country. You'll be fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'll be fine. They got really great to run. Now we're busy really fast. That I'm going to. But you get, you know, another story I wrote about. You do get, if you've ever trained for one of these races and you're on a schedule, you get so obsessed with it. You just can't let anything interfere with it. And one weekend, I was up at this game lodge in the Luangwa Valley of Zambia, which is one of the most pristine game viewing areas in Africa and I needed to run and the guys were like you cannot I mean there are lions and leopards and you cannot run you're not fast enough right I finally (laughs) said oh come on there's got to be a way and they caucus and they came back and they said we think if you run precisely at noon and you run only on this dirt path you will be fine oh geez so I went out and ran every there, day at lunch. There you go, right? <laughs> I'll, cha- I'll change my, uh, I, I need to get my runs in, That's right? right. And so, I, I said, I was, I was just so impressed that African predators have such a keen sense of time. Right, yeah, they, they, they had it honed They in all took precisely. their siesta exactly new. <laughs> so I want to go back to your beginning of your law endeavor. You went to Yale Law, but it, it wasn't. You went three and your three and out, and you did your thing. It was very interesting on how you got there. Yeah, it was. So when I came out, my I'd done well at Carolina, uh, and my senior year, I really. It's funny that I've circled back to it now at the end of my career, but I really thought I wanted a career in educational administration, and lawyers were running education in North Carolina in those days, and in some ways they still are. So um, I did two things. I applied to Yale Law, and it wasn't hubris. It's just, in my mind, Yale was a place where uh, it was a little more diverse than a lot of law schools. They trained people to do things other than just go to Wall Street and be a corporate lawyer. So if I was going to go to law school, I thought that's where I wanted to go. And I applied to graduate school in education. And not surprisingly, I got into the graduate school in education, and I got on the wait list at Yale Law. So I started summer school uh, in doing graduate courses in education uh, and I'd finished one term I just started my second session of summer school I got a special delivery letter from Yale saying I'd been admitted off the wait list uh, 
And I called the dean and I said, and I'm much more charitable about this. I let people do this all the time. But I called the dean and said, you know, I'm into this program already. Uh, I'll be done with my master's next summer. Why don't you let me just finish my master's in education and come to law school next fall? And he made it very clear to me that I was the last one in. (laughs) And that if uh, I didn't show up in New Haven in six weeks, it was unlikely I'd ever see the city. You'll never hear from me again. Yeah, so I did. So I showed up in New Haven, but it was, wasn't sure I wanted to be there, and I was too late to get in housing with the rest of the first-year law students, and uh, I didn't know anything about New Haven, so I rented an efficiency apartment on the most dangerous street in town. Uh, it just wasn't a very pleasant experience. My, and so two weeks in, uh, I decided I was just going to go back to my original plan. And uh, I called the School of Education, and they said, yeah, you'll be late, but you can get back in the fall semester. Uh, So I went, but I'm polite. So as I was leaving New Haven, I went by the dean of students' office and said, this is not for me. I'm going home. Uh, and, uh, And he said, you know, you're not the first person who's ever had that response, particularly folks who come from, you know, rural backgrounds in faraway states, and you're the only kid from your place here. Uh, it's not unusual. Uh, so why don't you try to gut through this semester? And Yale's policy is if you get a semester under your belt, uh, you can come back any time in the next five years with no question to finish. And I said, so I did. I was never very happy, but I did well, and I finished the semester, and I went home. And I finished my master's degree, uh, and then it just graded on me. i never not been successful at anything, and I – you know, was in a better, I was in much better shape mentally. So I went back to Yale and finished and had a great time. Ah. Got a wonderful education and made lifelong friends. And you got to, you got to read about those, those friends that he, that he made out there. And just, I can just see somebody who's not from anything like that driving up there and then finding out that they have an apartment on the toughest street <laughs> next to it. And it's just like, uh Oh, like uh, this is, yeah. Well, and it was it was things like, you know, the first person I met was a wonderful woman who became a great friend. Her name was Levita Coleman. Uh, her dad, Bill Coleman, was the Secretary of Transportation in the first Bush administration. At that point, he was on the board of Pan Am, which was the big international airline. And so I just innocently said Friday morning, Levita, what you doing for the weekend? I'm going to Paris. Oh, really? <laughs> You're what? She said, yeah, my dad's on the board of Pan Am. I have a pass. I can go free on any Pan Am flight anywhere in the world. So I'm going to Paris. I'm like, wow, I'm in a different <laughs> like, world. I was going to go get some lunch, but you know, <laughs> what's, what's going on? But yeah, you're in a totally different world. So I can, I can just imagine on how you felt and probably some imposter syndrome kind of came exactly. in, right? Yeah. No, you, you do. I mean, I, it, it's funny. I sat in my first class and I looked around, I thought for the first time in my life, I could be the dumbest person in this room. <laughs> Jeez. And, and you've, you've hammered it out. You got to look at that story, uh, everybody. Cause I learned a lot just by uh, reading into it. And again, we're talking about, uh, the Dean's new book and you have to, you have to get it. It's a, it's a lot of fun and you, you'll learn a lot. There was a fringe benefit about when you so fast forward a little bit there's two things i want to uh sure touch on actually three things 
And I'm so honored you read it. I mean, yeah, a lot it, of people have been asking about this book or like, tell me about the book because they don't know the first thing about it. <laughs> so I, I call it a fringe benefit. Yeah. And I know you probably were just elated when it, when you could figure this out. But when you were dean 2013, we uh, dean of the law school, uh, they asked you to go on another trip. They did. And something that had never happened to in all your flights came oh. out. So it was a fringe benefit, <laughs> I call it. So... Uh, I've been to Africa more than 60 times, and those are long flights. Slightly. And uh, the United States government, I'm, I don't think this applies to the president or the secretary of state, but if you're just an average Joe flying on business of the United States, uh, you just have to fly economy class. They won't let you fly any other way. And I'm a pretty big guy, so cramped in those seats for 14, 16-hour flights uh, gets, brutal. A little, gets a little brutal. Um, so in uh, 2014, I got a call from Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, Chief of Staff, and he said that the Chief Justice in Namibia uh, had just visited with Roberts and that they had just amended their constitution to take the authority over the courts away from the Minister of Justice and place it in the Chief Justice, which frankly is something I've been advocating every place I went because the courts uh, in Africa look independent, but then you start looking at them administratively and they are supported by the Minister of Justice in the executive branch. So uh, they can be squeezed if the executive doesn't like what they're doing in terms of buildings and personnel and salaries. Wow. Um, so this was a big deal. And so, uh, so Peter Chavute, who I had known from working in Namibia, had asked Roberts if maybe he could arrange for me to come back and work with him on writing the parliamentary instrument, as they call it, that would set up the new administrative structure of the courts under him. So I did go back for two weeks and I uh, and wrote, he and I drafted uh, the parliamentary act that the parliament passed without changing a comma. And that's really the structure of the Namibian courts today. But your point is this. I realized that because it was a flight of more than eight hours and I was now a consultant to the United States, not an employee, I could fly business class. I cracked up when I saw that. That is, and you were stretching out, <laughs> looking at all the other colleagues in the back. How's it going? Like that's, that, well, that was, you know, that's, I, I just cracked up because yeah. I hear I've only made a few international uh, flights and I was cramped and I'm not a big guy. And yeah, so I couldn't imagine. Yeah. But you also had a, another funny little story about being cramped. Oh, is the oh there's, it's a guerrilla war on those flights. Uh, as soon as they shut the door, the, the flight attendants announced that the doors have been closed. Chaos. Everybody's <laughs> chaos. As if the flight's not full, as everybody moves, trying to claim two or three seats uh, that you can spread out in. And uh, there was one long flight from New York to Johannesburg, which is 14 hours and a row of three, and we had an empty middle seat and the doors had closed. And the other guy and I were just high-fiving because a little room. Uh, and they reopened the doors. Uh-oh. And this Texan who's about 6'6 with a big hat comes down the aisle. And of course, he's our middle seat guy. Of course. And he uh, sits down and he is terrified uh, because he said, I don't know what happened. And we said, what do you mean you don't know what happened? He said, you know, I won the employee of the year at my company and they said it was a hunting trip. 
And I thought I was just going up in the Texas hills to shoot deer. And they're sending me to Africa. <laughs> sending me to Africa. That's a big, that's a big change. <laughs> and, and he was just probably deer in the headlights, deer, he right? He was pun absolutely deer in the yeah, headlights. Pun intended on that one. Um, <laughs> one of the, uh, I want to tell everybody they have to read the, your stories about your judicial nominations and the political hoopla that you had to go through. It's very eye-opening uh, on that. But one thing as we wrap up here and make it more personal which it really struck out to me or stuck out to me is your relationship and how important your grandparents were to you. And specifically at, at the, just the start end of your collegiate life at Yale, right. but you were taking the bar exam. No, um, exactly. Um, so um, I come from two big Piedmont agricultural clans. Uh, my father was the 12th of 15. My mother was the second of four. Uh, so I grew up with 16 sets of aunts and uncles. I grew up next door to my paternal grandparents, and my maternal grandparents uh, lived on the family dairy farm 20 miles away where I spent so much of my time. And I was, uh, my paternal grandfather died when I was in the fifth grade. My maternal grandmother, I knew until she died at 98. Uh, but I was very close to my maternal grandparents. They had just built this prosperous dairy farm out of sheer will and hard work. Uh, and they were lovely people, but they were no nonsense. Uh, people sometimes say to me, why do you work so hard? And I said, well, I think it goes back to being about 10 years old. And my grandmother, and I was her oldest grandchild, and she adored me. Uh, but she had told me to get out there in the garden and get the grass out of her bean row. And it was a hot summer day, and there were bugs, and it wasn't fun. so. I was playing under the pear tree when I got lifted up by my ear and I heard the voice of God say, I'll have no grandchild before I raise a sorry one. Yeah. Oh, I, I still hear that when I, when I want to slack off on something, I still hear that. There's in my, a slight hearing problem in your, in your ear, I right? I still hear yeah. that, you know, in my ear, you know. Um, but she, uh, she and I were very close and she got very sick the summer I was taking the bar exam. And, uh, and in fact, I walked out of the bar exam, drove to Winston-Salem, and spent the last night of her life with her in the hospital. And the doctors told me, said, she has kept her life, she has kept herself alive this week, mumbling about the big test. She wasn't going to mess up the big test. That, that gives me, honestly, gives me chills. I had uh, a great relationship with my grandparents and my, my great-grandparents, too. And so it, it kind of <laughs> refreshed some of my uh, memories on them. And Dean, thank you so much for talking to us a little bit about your book. People get it. And I'm going to have you say the name of it again <laughs> so I don't butcher it. Uh, tell us the name of it it's again. It's called From Welcome to Vintook. To Vintook. Uh, and just, uh, I, I may have said this earlier, but to refresh. So Welcome's the little agricultural vi village in the Piedmont in Davidson County where I was raised and where my family's been on the same creek bank for 250 years. And Vintook was the last city, as I just talked about, in Africa where I did a substantial amount of work. So, uh the alliteration works and it makes sense as a title. Love it. And uh, people get the book. You can get it on Amazon. It's on the shelf at Quail Ridge, which is our local independent bookstore. And you can get it off the Quail Ridge website. And I'm a big supporter of independent bookstores. Yeah, so. shop, shop local, right? So shop and, local if you can. But it's also on, you can get it off Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Yeah, let's let's 
what's the what's the local Quail shop? Ridge. Quail Ridge Books at North Hills. Go to them. Amazon has plenty of people going to it. Right. So, uh, Dean, thank you very much. Um, well, Steve, check out the you. book. It's been, it's been lovely. Thank you. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.